0: You're listening to a 58 Ember production.
1: Today, we're discovering cultivated meat as a promising space food for astronauts, the meaning behind all those different grocery store labels on your Thanksgiving turkeys, and a peek into the Walmart and Walton influence over the American food system. Welcome to Discover Ag, your not-so-average food podcast. I'm Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska.
2: And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And every week we are bringing you the top stories in the ag and food space that you need to know. And this week, our episode is actually going to be ending with a fabulous interview. We are interviewing Megan Hamilton, who is the co-owner of Enchantment Vineyards, which is a vineyard and winery. Megan is. A fascinating interview. You guys need to stick around for this if you guys drink wine. She is telling us what goes into a good bottle of wine and also uh, some things that might be in some bottles of wine that you don't know about and that aren't labeled. And you know how Natalie and I feel about labels, but this is one I think that you guys need to stick around for. Uh, Megan is a wealth of knowledge. She has a bachelor's degree in like astrophysicist, which she threw in at the very end of the interview, and also a degree in... I'm going to say this wrong, but I'm going to try. Enology uh, from UC Davis, which is the study of wine. I can boldly
1: go out there and say, I think, think this might be one of my favorite interviews we've done on Discover Ag yet. So tune in, you guys. It is really um, a lot of fun but informative, which is how we like to keep it here on Discover Ag.
2: With that, happy Thursday, you guys. Happy Thursday, discos. I hope you all are having a fabulous week. If you are watching one of our reels on Instagram of this, I look very professional. I feel like I'm like a news reporter today. I'm like, hi, coming to you live from Orlando, Florida, and the not-so-sunny Florida.
1: Please don't use that voice throughout the podcast.
2: <laughs> no problem. That was that was it. That's all I got. That's all I prepared.
1: Your uh, stint as a news reporter was short-lived and that is how we will keep it
2: Completely short-lived But no, I do feel like this is like an episode of where in the world is tara and I am in orlando florida for the dairy Meeting, so that's where i'm coming live from another hotel room You say that as if that's not a theme of our podcast. Where is tara
1: tuning into podcast from this week?
2: No, I feel like it's like a segment now for our podcast It's like Mm -hmm. what random location could tara possibly be coming to us live from?
1: We could play. Where is Tara? Like, where is Waldo?
2: <laughs> I like. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? What about that? I feel like that's more. No, I'd be Wales Waldo. Thanks, Nat. <laughs> you're welcome. It's just the vibes you're giving. I don't know. It's just what I'm picking up. All right. Well, that that's what's going on with us. Um, how are you? How's your week? You just got back from Montana, where you gave a keynote speech and crushed it. I did, and
1: I can say that I am just. You messaged me afterwards, and were like, aren't you riding that post-speech high? You know, the adrenaline, the rush, the excitement. And I was like, no, I am riding the post-speech relievement. Like, I am just relieved that it is over. I'm relieved that it went so well. And I feel like I'm out of a stupor. Like, I am back to reality. I just have been consumed by that speech for weeks leading up to it, perfecting it, repeating it over and over again. And so I just I feel excited to like be back in the world again. And I don't know, just... I feel... It feels good, but it was a ton of fun. It was fun to go back to Montana. and um, I got to see my family, spend time with them. I took Jack's, my middle child, and he got to, you know, quality time with grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles. And so it was a perfect mix of family and business. And it just, it went really good.
2: All right. With that, let's thank our sponsor, Case IH. Bailing, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning the barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmall. And I'll say this is my second time reading this ad and I thought I would do better. I'm sorry, you guys. This tractor does a lot. I am. <laughs> I'm trying to do as much as the tractor and I cannot.
1: I'm going to count next time and see how many things it does. It's it's a lot. It There's a few. I also kind of want to put it to a beat, like we should sing it.
2: I feel like it needs to be like a rap, and I don't think I'm the right person for that. So I'm going to turn over the ad reads to you. We could take out news reporting as your job and rapping. (laughs) Totally. I don't have a lot of redeeming qualities. I'm sorry, Discos.
1: Okay. Before we dive into our articles, I think it is important to take a second and um, honor our veterans. So this was released on Thursday. Last weekend was Veterans Day. To all our troops, veterans, and military families, thank you for all that you have given to keep America safe. You have our deepest gratitude and our everlasting commitment. Um, Thank you for your sacrifices, for your valor, for the things you carry, for protecting us, and for defending our rights. Thank you to all of our veterans for your courage, strength, and dedication to keeping us safe. I just have to say over the weekend, I found myself on Veterans Day Twitter, and I was Absolutely crying in my bed. I just, this holiday gets me every year, every time. Um, truly, we cannot thank you enough. So, if you are a veteran tuning in, thank you. If you know a veteran, if you have a veteran in your family, just thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And on that note, we will dive into our first article to discover this week. Headline Cultivated Meat is a Promising Space Food for Astronauts. European Space Agency says. Over the past year, the ESA has been exploring whether cultivated meat can be a viable food option in space, used as a protein source that can be produced in situ.
2: Uh, as we're getting started, I need to tell you that the word right now, space, is very triggering for me. I rode the space mission at Disney World yesterday, and I don't get motion sickness. It was it was a rough ride. I barely made it through, going over your ass to do it again, and I said no. So I just need you to... When we picked this article, I never intended to feel this way about the word space, but here we are. So just keep that in mind as we're discussing space and food and lab-grown meat. I'm just a little queasy
1: you're like, you look really cute today and mommy doesn't want to throw up on your shoes. So we're going to
2: keep that to one ride. <laughs> they had barf bags next to every single spot. I was like, nothing to, to keep your mind off of how you're feeling, than a handy barf bag. So with that, we're going to get into the article, but cultivated meat, yes, as you said, is a promising space food. I think on the positive side, I think the idea behind this is that growing meat in space could help increase the duration and self-sufficiency of missions, which. On that tone, I think it's positive, right, that there would be more food options for astronauts when they are in long space missions, like, right, they have to bring foods that uh, last for a long time, which I actually have a list of foods they cannot bring. um, And we can get into that. But like, this would be an interesting option for them. They obviously like can't bring like frozen steaks with them. So could they cultivate their own meat in space?
1: Yeah, I do think it's a really exciting place to dive into, uh, especially coming from the astronaut standpoint. Um, one of the articles said the goal of it was to ensure astronauts have a continuous food supply for long space missions. And um, I know there's a lot of work to be done around it, which we can dive into a second, but I do think it um, it makes sense. And I actually, I don't know if people will be expecting this or not, but I don't mind the idea of cultiva- cultivated meat being maybe the solution. Like it does kind of make sense.
2: Yeah, my frustration on the flip side is why couldn't this have been exactly what you said? Wow, this makes sense. Instead, this article very quickly turned into an anti-meat agenda. The next one of the second sentences was that's because it can provide more sustainable and ethical alternatives that does not only mitigate animal slaughter, but also uses far less natural resources than traditional livestock farming. And if we've been seeing the research coming out of UC Davis, we know it is not more sustainable. And so I'm just I'm frustrated with them because it was like this could have been a really great story just like how you know, there's limited options in space and this could have been a a tool for them to be able to use. And instead it was like, let's bash animal agriculture.
1: Yeah, I completely second that. It is always disheartening going into these articles. You wonder what narrative they will slip into it, if there will be a narrative or agenda. And it is always disheartening to kind of stumble upon it that that always has to be added in, like the clauses, the statements, the exaggerations. Um, They put some bold stats to go with their narrative. They said... That they estimate the cultivated meat could cause 92% less global warming, 93% less air pollution, 95% less land and 78% less water um, usage. And again, knowing what we know about this, the science that's out there right that now just shows that that's not true. And those stats are too high for me to even feel like they could possibly be true. Yeah. So this is not the first, um, of space agencies to have been investing into this new alternative proteins over the past couple of years. We mentioned the ESA, which this article is about, but NASA has been looking into it. Japan space agency with is, which is J A X A and then Canada's um, have well, they've all been like looking into this, you know, investment into cultured meat.
2: Yeah. And some of the benefits, obviously we talked about, you know, being able to be like resilient in space and the limited resource, but also like nutritional component. Well, I mean, as pro-meat people, we agree with the fact that meat is a very nutritious product. Um, Another part that I thought was kind of interesting was the psychological benefits that like this would be like a, a splurge food if you're in space. I saw that uh, there has been a guy that's been living in space for 437 days. And I'm not going to lie. I would be like, I want a steak. So I agree. They listed that they were comparing the protein
1: sources studied in space, um, which are currently plants and algae from a nutritional point of what this cultivated meat could do. So I do think it's exciting to have like... you said, even from a physical standpoint or an emotional standpoint, this meat as an option, but it also raises a question that you and I go back to often, which is nutritionally, how does cultivated meat compare to actual animal protein um, and the taste and everything? So I think on one hand, it probably sounds pretty exciting, but I'm also wondering, like, is it going to be really that much better than the plant or algae protein that's already offered?
2: Yeah. Algae protein sounds very appetizing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, why can't they just take jerky? Yeah, that sounds way better than algae or freeze dried fruit or powdered drinks. And so some of the list of foods that are not available include bread, alcohol. Just going to say I'm out again in case. Oh, I'm not <laughs> they cannot have salt or pepper or spices, which I never had thought about because they would just like float up into the air. They're not allowed to have soda pop. And apparently there is no such thing as astronaut ice cream, even though astronaut ice cream is the number one food sold at like that NASA gift store.
1: You should see my face discos as I'm trying to think about the science behind why they can't have some of these food, like how space works.
2: So weird, isn't it? Yeah, as a person who was in zero gravity yesterday, like barely holding on to my Kool-Aid. (laughs) Um, I was thinking about the fact that salt and pepper, like then you would be like inhaling salt and pepper. Like the whole thing just sounds really difficult. Everything has to be like consumed through a straw. I don't know. It was when I was researching this, it wasn't one of the more unappetizing um, articles that we've ever covered. I'm feeling really bad for the astronauts.
1: So moving into something you said earlier, which was that you had a lot of fun diving into this topic and reading about it. I did, too. One of the things that came up that I never really thought about before is how innovation that they do for like with space in mind really influences innovation back on land and kind of like how NASA is... um, almost leading some of it, they talked about how one in every 1000 US patents is granted to someone working on a NASA project, and how a lot of what we created for space ends up influencing. So they said wireless headsets were actually first developed for astronauts to allow them to be hands free in space. Um, They also talked about how like this insulation technology that we use in homes
2: now was first developed by space. And I just You know, honestly, had no idea. Ballpoint pens were invented because of space. Not sure why we couldn't just use a pencil. Oh, thank you. Yep. And actually, that is part of this research is that they think that technology is really promising and their hope is that it will further the development of cultivated meat and like speed it up for the adoption on Earth as well. And so it is interesting how things that are like developed for space agencies, whether that be NASA or other international bodies, then becomes like common practice or commonplace. And so thinking about that with the cultivated meat, it is a pretty fascinating conversation. It leads you to a lot of different trains of thoughts.
1: Going back to how you said that if you were out in space, you would want a steak. I would love to see an article written about what the first meal back home astronauts eats is like 99% of them are probably going for a big fat
2: juicy steak, baked potato, like a classic Meal, don't you think? Oh, for sure. There's only a hundred items supposedly to choose from on the space station, and it's all, you know, obviously pre packaged meals. It did say they had some dessert options, but yeah, I feel like when I am getting off that space station, I am eating like a steak. I mean, all the food. I probably would want some bread since you're not allowed to have bread on there. Um, Definitely pouring like a glass of wine or something, like celebrating. That I am no longer in space, but that's probably not what they're doing. I feel like if they're astronauts and they like love this to their core, they're probably so sad to not be in space anymore.
1: Mm, Something I just don't relate with.
2: No, me neither. But you mentioned beef jerky. And so moving on, before we get into our article, our other sponsor is actually Wagbar. They should take Wag bars into space. That seems like a genius idea. Wagbars are 100% American Wagyu beef snacks. They are beef with a purpose. Uh, they offer so much protein. I know they help me get my protein goals for the day every day. I've heard, my mom tells me this frequently, they're really good, heated up. I still have not taken her advice, but apparently that is an option. Um, and so, yeah, there. it's a really incredible uh, company, Wagbar. We do have a code for you guys. You guys can go to mywagbar.com and use code DISCOVER to get a discount. And I think one of my favorite things about Wagbar, and I know it's Natalie too, is really the beef with a purpose part, that Wagbar has donated cases of meat bars to Iron Gate, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to feeding the homeless in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where the Wagbar's uh, main ranch is located. So meat normally requires refrigeration and uh, narrow expir- expiration windows, but Wag Bar is shelf-stable and versatile.
1: Yeah, we actually ran out. I think there's maybe a little bit of the Cranberry Bites packages left, but I'm out of, like, my standard boxes. And I have been thinking I need to sit down and order because I miss having the Wag Bar as a snack. Like, um... Like even coming out to podcast record, I'd usually grab one. And so I've been It's been on my to-do list. I need to resupplement to to restock.
2: Yeah, I feel like we should send a care package to the NASA space team and be like, mm, here's, your, that'd be fun. here's your option.
1: Go get them, boys, boys and girls.
2: Yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Moving into the second article to discover this week. Headline, free range turkey, organic turkey and others. What the terms mean. There are many, sometimes confusing, choices when choosing a holiday bird. It is used to be simple, fresh or frozen. Unfortunately, some of those terms have no regulations, leaving it up to the buyer to determine.
2: So I know this is about turkey, but I was at HEB the other day, and I was in the egg section. And HEB is a pretty, like, obviously a lot bigger than my like local grocery store. And I was so overwhelmed by the egg section and the amount of labels that were on it. Like one of them was like vegetarian eggs, like it was just crazy. Uh, Pasture raised, cage free. And so for me, this conversation is a little bit less about turkey and more about a conversation around labels and what they are doing to our food system.
1: Yeah. So this is actually what my keynote is on is um, consumer confusion around labels and like what that could mean for on-farm and ranch production. And so I have a whole lot... Um, which, you know, to say about labels, because you share a lot of my same beliefs, but yeah, it is. I mean, I actually share a story in my keynote, um, about a friend I have who was talking about the same thing you have. I do think the ache section is actually a big barrier for people or like a pain point for them. But she said she felt, you know, like every time she walks in the grocery store, she says she feels completely overwhelmed and doesn't know what to choose.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to just go ahead and give your keynote and I could just sit back and not do anything. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be lovely. <laughs> no, no. That is for uh, reserved for conferences. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, no, it actually goes into what we're going to be speaking about at South by Southwest is exactly what your friend is feeling. Like that fear and the guilt and the like, I feel like shame. I like don't use those words lightly, but I think there's a lot of feelings right now when people go to the grocery store and they see all the labels. And I feel like that's what we're going to go into South by Southwest talking about. That's kind of what our uh, platform and onstage um, presentation is there is like, this entire fear mongering around kind of the marketing tactics we're using in our food aisles.
1: Yeah, marketing, greenwashing. And I do want to kind of get into some of these labels because I do think it'll be helpful for people who are tuning in. We did it this week purposely a little bit before Thanksgiving to kind of help you guys um, as you are in the grocery store aisles. But I will say one thing I loved about this article is their expert opinion was a farmer.
2: I feel like we need to have a cue a uh, clapping and applause feature in our because it was it was amazing. I was like I was shaking my head as you were talking. But this article sta- starts out with very like fact based very matter of fact from a farmer sharing exactly what each label means and even what labels don't mean or the gray area in between. It was very refreshing article in that sense.
1: So one thing about me when I read I skim I can read super fast. And I think part of that is because I skim more than I actually read. And so I miss where they said, you know, that the, or introduced his title with his name, I guess I kind of missed that title part. And so as I kept going through, I kept thinking, man, this guy, is who is this Zimmerman? This Zimmerman is so smart. I'm so, uh, I just loved every which we'll get into a couple of his talking points. And so then I was scrolling back up through to try and find like what his, you know, title was his area of expertise was. And I don't know what I was guessing, but I'm so not used to it being a farmer that I didn't guess a farmer. And so then when I got back up to the top of the article and saw that it was a farmer, I mean, I just, I was like, well, that makes sense. And then I was obviously happy.
2: Yeah, I agree. He did a fabulous job. I mean, the organic was simply like stating the regulations. It was nothing more. It wasn't like this isn't, you know, no, no indication that it was like an animal welfare standard or a nutritious standard. Like it was just very matter of fact. But then when we got to the free range section, I feel like is where the problems kind of started. And obviously, he did his best job to like explain it. But um, I'm quoting him when he said usually whenever he was describing free range. And what I did like, though, about his point of view is he was discussing how, you know, Minnesota chicken farmer may not have the option to have free range in the middle of the winter. And so that free range can kind of like... It has some gray area as to what it means. And it brought up another point that sometimes as consumers, we ask for things. And I think I'm guilty, especially in the poultry and egg section where I'm just so like fish out of water over there. Um, We ask for things that we don't really like think about, like the unintended consequences. Like, yeah, duh, it's not going to be better for animal welfare for a chicken to be free range in January in Minnesota. And so I'm glad he highlighted that. that That's like just because a farmer chooses to not be free range doesn't mean like that's a bad decision for him. It might make the most sense for his farm.
1: Yeah. I thought he put together some really good examples that were easy to digest um, and like understand. Before we continue into a few more of the labels that we want to share with you guys, I do want to say a clause at the beginning that all turkeys found in retail stores are either inspected by the USDA or by the state system, which have standards equivalent to the federal government. Um, and the inspected for wholesomeness by the USDA seal ensures that it is wholesome, properly labored and not adulterated. So one thing I also learned before getting into the specific labels is that inspection for this wholesomeness is mandatory, but grading for quality is voluntary. And so I think that's also t- like important for people to kind of learn, because I do think we have so much learning to do around labels, all of us, whether we're in the ag industry or not. Um, there are things that are not required to be considered to be put on the label or to be passed for. And so I think those are the things we also have to look at as two when we're like looking at this big picture.
2: Yeah. Two things that I learned in here that stood out to me is that all turkeys are cage free. So that doesn't really mean anything on a label as well as all turkeys are hormone free. And he gave a really great example of this that I feel like a lot of times it's pushed in like I don't know, food narratives or from like kind of going back to like those food influencers that like turkeys are getting bigger because we're like injecting them with hormones or like there is this like huge conspiracy theory around that I feel like. And he made such a great point that he was like, we are doing a better job of giving turkeys a really comfortable environment. And so therefore they're able to grow bigger. And I was like, Duh, that makes a ton of sense, and so I agree with you. He just like had very like practical, tactical examples of why things are a certain way, and then like what the labels do or do not mean.
1: Yeah, so I want to double click what you said because I do think it's helpful for um, everyone listening. That cage free all is not like a label worth paying extra for. So all turkeys are raised cage free. So if you have an example of a turkey in front of you and it has the cage free on it, and you think it's worth paying a little bit more to get that like cage free environment or raising technique, all of them do. So don't pay extra money for the cage free turkey. And then the other one you um, mentioned was the um, hormones. So again, if you see like the no added hormones, hormone free on the turkey label, and it is Going to be more expensive to the one to the left or right of it. Don't pay the extra money for that no hormone label because, again, across the board, all of them are going to be that.
2: Yeah. And one that is not regulated that I think, unfortunately, I feel like this is going to like break the hearts of a lot of consumers on here is pasture raised is not regulated at all. Um, you know, obviously for consumers, it like brings images of like a red barn or the, the turkeys out like grazing in a pasture, eating bugs. Uh, but really, like, Again, there's just nothing behind it more than just marketing.
1: Another dangerous one to pay for is the responsibly raised turkey because again, it can pretty much mean whatever the marketer wants it to mean, which coming from a lot of our (laughs) food companies, what they want is for you to buy. you know. And so I think this puts me on the soapbox that you and I talk about a lot when we go on like guesting on other people's podcasts is about paying extra money at the grocery store for labels. If you want to know if your turkey was like, quote unquote, responsibly raised, if you want to know that it was quote unquote, like pasture raised, like you want those details. The best option is to try and shop like direct to consumer, right? That is going to give you the sure background behind the raising of the turkey and what went into it. The grocery store labels don't. And so I always have a hard time telling people to pay the extra money for grocery store labels Because I just think at the end of the day, I mean, there are helpful ones out there. I don't want to say, you know, there aren't, but at the end of the day, a very large percentage and portion of them are just to get more monies in the pockets of the people selling them.
2: Yeah. And I'm really glad this farmer ended with kind of the quotes he did about like, kind of like what you said, like all turkey is safe and there's no mean- meaningful nutritional differences. So, you know, just take all of those labels, you know, at like, I guess, I don't know, with a grain of salt would be, I guess, the thing I'm looking for. Um, because at the end of the day, they all are produced, you know, with certain guidelines, certain regulations, all of those things and are nutritionally very similar. On that note, I'm going to break the hearts of every turkey farmer that's listening. If there are any, I'm eating steak for Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. I just want to have steak for every meal. I just like don't need to have a turkey. I feel bad saying that, but that's the truth.
1: I mean, Thanksgiving isn't even my favorite holiday,
2: which I mean, I don't really like it as a holiday.
1: And I'm sure I will get some backlash for that because I think it's a lot of people's favorite holiday.
2: It is a lot of people's favorite holiday. Producer Maddie also does not like turkey. So (laughs) if you are looking for great turkey recipes, I don't think we're the trio to look for recipes for.
1: We're not the podcast for like Thanksgiving
2: cheer. Apparently we're
1: like, we don't like turkeys and we don't like the holiday and we could
2: just move on to Christmas already. Yeah. And on that, we're moving on to the next article. <laughs> but first, we're thanking American Farm Bureau. So we have talked about this ones already, but in 2024, the American Farm Bureau Convention is going to be in Salt Lake City, Utah, January 19th through the 24th. It is going to be a great time to explore some of agriculture's new frontiers and learn from experts who are helping to blaze the trail. You do not want to miss inspiring keynotes and engaging industry issues presented by ag experts from across the country. There are also some great Workshops that are exclusive to con- uh, convention attendees. Uh, we are going to be both presenting as a part of um, two workshops while we're there. So, we, if you are attending, we hope you'll come to our workshops. So, make sure you register today to secure your spot in the audience. Um, you can register with the link in our show notes and use code DISCOVER. Using that code DISCOVER will get you um, some free swag bag. And yeah, a lot of exciting things happening in Salt Lake City at the American Farm Bureau Convention.
1: When I was back in Montana for my keynote, I was actually presenting at the Montana Farm Bureau's annual convention. And when I say it got me so excited for Salt Lake, it got me so excited for Salt Lake. I actually got to judge the Young Farmers and Ranchers competition. So I'm fully invested in the Montana candidate now going to Salt Lake and competing. And I'm just really excited to be back at a conference. Um, I mean, we talk about it all the time, how much we love attending them from one information standpoint, but to the networking. They're so fun to network and meet with other people. And so like Tara said, if you guys are considering going to the Salt Lake One, use code discover and register um, and see us there.
2: And we also will be recording an episode of Discover Ag live on stage. So you do not want to miss it.
1: All right. Diving into our last and final article to discover this week, headline, The Long Reach of the Walmart Walton Empire. So this is actually an ongoing investigative series by Civil Eats, and I think it's like maybe a five-part series they're releasing. Don't quote me on that, but I know it's definitely multi-parts, and they're going to be taking a detailed look at the Walmart and Walton influence over the American food system, over the producers and policymakers who shape it, and how it would be critics are also its bedfellows. And they also may note that they do not accept donations from the Waltons or their associated charities.
2: Yeah, they actually have one about regenerative ag and Walmart as well as a part of that series. So um, that one is on our list to check out too. Um, This one is kind of like, I'm a little passionate about this one right now because the Walmart in our town actually like burnt down the super center. And it is like creating a massive crisis in our town. And I don't say crisis with like, I mean like crisis. Like people are having a really hard time having access to like foods and groceries and it's putting a strain on all the other small groceries. And it just keeps like reminding me of the fact that when I was a kid, like pre Walmart in New Mexico, um, you know, we had like a thriving, like main street and lots of small businesses. But now with like one large one and it being shut down, it is an absolute crisis.
1: Yeah, so I have so many places to take this conversation based off what you said. One, it is interesting that you said the word crisis, because when I was reading this, I had never really thought about it. But after reading this article, I thought to myself, if we were to lose the Walmart franchise, it would be like a crisis mm-hmm. for the economy. And it made me re- like, just consider so many different Viewpoints and almost this balance, like this tipping scale. It was so interesting to read and feel that at the end of it, like almost like we need it. I know we don't, but that's how the article made me feel is that we're so almost in bed with it that we can't be without it in a sense.
2: Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, to give a statistic, Walmart's annual revenues are larger than the GDP of Sweden, like of a country. And I just remember when Walmart's were going in when I was a kid, and like I think Walmart's are maybe a bigger thing down where I am more so than where you are, which is kind of another interesting thing we can talk about is like the locations of Walmarts. But like, obviously there was a lot of pushback to not get it. And then there was obviously like, you know, people who were pro Walmarts and it's just, it really is like, it has shaped our like local economies so much in the last 30 years that it's it's really wild to think about like the impact that Walmarts have had across the country. So
1: here's a staggering statistic going back to where you said in your opening that people are having trouble accessing like groceries um, because of the fire in your community. Uh, Walmart collects one of every three grocery dollars spent in America. That was astounding. I read that to Luke and he was even I elicited a response. He was shocked.
2: It's nuts. I read that. It employs 2.3 million people. The Walmart family is the richest family in America. And as a group, they are richer than Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Mark Zuckerberg.
1: Yeah, the power they have, again, it really made me at the end of this article kind of sit and pause. Um, not just because of, I guess, from like the income standpoint of the family. That's not really even what I was thinking about, but like the like The output right from the family. So their investments, their charities, they called it a sprawling buffet of corporate promising donations and seed capital and everything they have, I guess, going under the umbrella of the Walmart Walton name truly does have implications for food and ag, right? So they have power to influence food prices for most goods, food policy A lot of the lives of obviously food producing regions, families and
2: towns, Um, like just power, absolute power is the word I think of after reading this. Yeah, it's the world's largest retailer. So when you think about what that actually means, they absolutely have influence over world trade, food prices, agriculture, land use. Um, And to like kind of bring that maybe in a more tangible way to think about is they actually help develop and scale the marine stewardship, uh, council certification. And we've talked a lot about seafood recently on this podcast. I think it's kind of been a theme. And so it's kind of very, I I don't know what the right word is. I'm going to just use interesting as lack of a better word of the fact that like a retailer could have that much influence over a certification of whether something is like of good stewardship or not.
1: Yeah. Cause call me naive or not, but I think of them as I thought of them as just a box store, right? (laughs) Just a large chain box store. I didn't think about all of these ripple effects and the power they really have. What I thought was interesting is this article opened up going back to 2005 when they were basically under like major scrutiny from the public. And you've already mentioned this. There's kind of the people that were like for Walmart coming into your community and then those highly opposed to it. And that I think that almost describes where they were at this place in 2005, right? So, they called in this public relations team to essentially like rebrand them so they no longer were seen as this small business, like wrecking behemoth. And I thought it was so interesting that they essentially hired someone to manage them as if they were a person. Like, you think of a celebrity who has a public relations team that's managing their perception and probably their talking points and the things they're putting out into the press, but it is for Walmart. Like, it's not for a person, it's for Walmart. And I found
2: that. So interesting. Yeah, they actually recruited former presidential advisors. It was very much giving, um, what was that TV show, like Scandal? Wasn't that the TV show? Yes, Scandal. Oh, I loved Scandal. It was giving like very fixer feeling that they hired in a team of fixers. You're giving very scandal vibes today. Yeah,
1: I, You're giving very Walmart fixing vibes today. I feel
2: like I am like a different person because of how I look. I don't remember the last time I did a slick back ballet bun and like I have on a business suit. Like I am like ready to conquer the world and it is, it's coming through, I feel like in my delivery of this episode for good or for bad.
1: This is actually a business podcast now. I
2: kind of feel that way. I'm even holding <laughs> the mic like a reporter. Like it's just very official. <laughs> Back to Walmart's uh, charity endeavors, they give almost one billion dollars to charity annually, and it's in all sorts of forms of grants, donations, um, and I think that might be worth noting that I have been the co-host of another podcast called Fieldwork, and the sole sponsor is the Walton Family Foundation. So maybe I should have like given <laughs> that led with that that I have like a conflict of interest.
1: Yeah, their collective spending on charity totaled nine hundred and sixty nine point eight million. In 2021 alone.
2: So this number actually surprised me. There's only about 5,000 Walmart stores in the United States. I don't know why I expected that to be bigger. There's over 10,000 worldwide. Texas has the most Walmarts and Hawaii does not have a Walmart.
1: So I actually knew that because I have attended a, I guess, presentation speech um, that a, well... I don't guess I don't know his direct role, but he goes out. It was through our local NCBA um, chapter. And so he he attends, a, you know, it was through the beef industry, I guess is a better way to say it. And he works with kind of Walmart supply chain for like their 44 farms they have going on. And so I knew that kind of statistic about how I guess it's not as large in numbers as you would think it is.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you think about how big the footprint, like the physical footprint is of the store, you're like, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. There are no uh, Walmarts in Chicago or New York City, which makes sense kind of just because of the sheer like scale it would take up in real estate. And then this was crazy. The gross profit is about $150 billion, which means that each store profits around $150,000 a day.
1: Yeah, I mean, they started going back to that they're not in larger urban cities. The premise of Walmart was starting a larger discount store in very small communities, which I think is really interesting. Like Sam Walton to me is very interesting. I wish I could have had a peek in his mind. I actually have had it on my list forever to read his book because he just fascinates me, the whole concept. Last thing I'll say about this article, for me, a big point takeaway that I kept thinking was how has Walmart maintained, right? So you think about like Kmart's, Shopgo's, um, Sears, like a lot of those other competitors at the same time, right? We don't see those names anymore. And so I think another interesting point about Walmart is how, I mean, there were statistics in there saying that it's actually just, I think, gotten more productive year over year. So while these other ones have fallen out of business, the power and growth and
2: wealth of Walmart has only maintained. It is the only company that has been able to compete with Amazon. And they don't see it going away. They don't see it like being diminished by Amazon, which is crazy. And the Walton family still owns 50% of Walmart, which I think is kind of important. Like they have a lot of control over still what's happening and where they tend to put a lot of their money when I was looking into this is like news and influencers. Like they very early on got into like the influencer mix. So I think they're very strategic. Like they have made sure they continue to have dominance over a lot of our commerce here in the country. And now moving into e-commerce to meet with Amazon. And so I, yeah, I think Sam, uh, Sam Walton, like no knew what he was doing and like has passed that insight on to like future generations and the leadership there because I just, Walmart's not going anywhere.
1: Yeah. he. There's actually a quote. Um, I think it's on the Walmart website, maybe, that they were asking him in an interview once if he knew what he was going to grow. And he said he never saw the vision of the scale, but he had every confidence in what he was building, um, which I thought was really interesting.
2: Also, some inspiration from producer Maddie. She said, if you look into the family history of Walmart, it is fascinating. The women of the family are absolute boss babes. So...
1: Ooh, we need to do some deep diving. Uh, I will say before we go that for anyone who is interested in learning more about this, Civil Eats will be releasing the rest of the pieces. So you guys could follow along with that. I don't think we'll cover the rest of them on the podcast. So if you want to continue this through, continue to learn more, you know, all the different parts they bring to the surface, Civil Eats is where you guys are going to want to do it.
2: All right. Well, thank you for listening to Discover Ag this week. Do not go anywhere because we have an amazing interview, as we mentioned at the beginning of this article, with Megan Hamilton, who is the co-owner of Enchantment Wines and Vineyards. Uh, we do have a special code for you guys. We're going to mention it in the podcast, but I'll say it again here. If you want to order some wines from Enchantment after listening to this interview, please use the code DISCOVER20 to get yourself 20% off your wines. And they deliver to almost every single state in the country. And so you can get some really great handcrafted uh, New Mexico wines. All right, this interview is a must listen for all of you wine lovers. We are covering all of our top questions, what to look for in a good bottle of wine, and some surprising facts for the next time you are buying wine in that grocery store aisle. To jump right into this, I I know you. Um, obviously, we grew up in the same hometown. So I, I know your, your family story and your story. But for our listeners, tell us how did you guys get started in in the wine industry, because that is not where your family like started or what your original business was. So, what is kind of this origin story? Um,
0: we have the story that we tell generally to the public, and then we
2: have the real story. <laughs> Which one would you like? <laughs> I definitely want the real one. Um, yeah, all the details, all that. Let's spill the wine
0: here. <laughs> yeah, no more spilling the tea. It's all wine. Mm-hmm. No. So we have some other businesses. We have a hardware store, a couple Ashley Furniture stores, and then a Budget Blinds. And we scheduled a trip together, the four of us plus my parents, and we all went to wine country. And we got plastered in wine country together, (laughs) all six of us. And in our moment of haze decided, like, we should totally do this. This will be amazing. We should start a winery and vineyard. And then came back, we did soil samples, took water samples, really started looking at it a little more seriously and realized this is the perfect area for grape growing. And it's really the original wine growing state in the United States. And it's got a lot going for it. So once we started piecing it all together and sobered up, we thought we could really do this. This could be a thing. And so we just started.
1: I love that because, as you alluded to, I think initially, I would say for most people, when we think of wine and winery in the US, we always inevitably go to California. And that was one of the things I loved so much about when I was first introduced to you guys and Enchantment Vineyards is your, you know, New Mexico backstory. And honestly, not just your guys' backstory, but the backstory of New Mexico itself in this, you know, wine history. So can you, do you have anything more you could share about that? Because I think it's so fascinating that you said that a lot of it even originated in that area.
0: Yeah, so if you think about, you know, us as a United States, it all started in the Santa Fe region and the Spanish conquistadors kind of coming up through the Mexico area and up into the United States and settling here. And that was all done. And then kind of the... 1500s, there's a little bit of some question on what that time frame looks like. And those Spanish missionaries were planting mission grapes. And so, mission wine or church wine was kind of the original wine here. And I think it's pretty neat that it is part of our history and part of our culture there.
1: So, diving into your guys's um, winery, or is it vineyard? Is it both? Yeah. Either or? Wolf. Yeah. Okay, uh, a little bit deeper. We actually covered a very interesting article about wine on the podcast a couple of week, weeks ago where there was this company out of California that was aging them on the bottom of the ocean and they were doing it illegally. And it was a very interesting you know, conversation to kind of walk through. But one of the things that stood out to me the most is I was asking Tara about, you know, she was kind of had an issue with this company. And she just said, I just know I learned from enchantment vineyards, that good soil is what makes good wine. So can we dive into that a little bit? Because you know, we are kind of an ag podcast and soil is kind of at the root of everything we do. So I'd love to hear your perspective about um, wine and soil together. Because I don't think that's something that we initially think of when we think of wine, we always think of the grapes. And it's like, we need to go a step further and start thinking about the soil.
0: Yeah, totally. So we're about seven years in on the growing side. And I feel like we've hit every perspective. You know, we started out just focusing on big ag and what does that look like and how do we get our numbers up or our production. And then we started looking at maybe we need to go organic or kind of really focus on this all natural side and realized that's borderline impossible. And then now I feel like we've kind of hit our mark the last couple years and we're just focusing on soil. And when the soil is happy and the grapes are happy, it is magic in the winery. Everything else kind of takes care of itself if we just really put all of our attention and effort into what's going on underneath the grapes. And it's been such a learning experience. We grow five different varieties and all five of them are like fussy children. Each one wants something different. So we're constantly taking soil samples, petiole samples. Um, we're working with the New Mexico State Extension Program. We're also working with New Mexico Viticulturist. And then we're shipping out samples to that darn California to <laughs> see where we're at to really make some decisions on what it looks like to keep everything in this really nice homeostasis.
2: Yeah. And I think the thing that you taught me that was fascinating is like if you have good soil, you ultimately have good grapes and you ultimately have good wine and you don't need to do a lot to the wine to make it taste good. On the flip side, there are other people who may not be as focused on soil health. And so I had no idea about this, but you can like have additives in your wine and they don't have to like put that on the label. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because I feel like that was a huge shock for me and something that like, I don't know, you brought a lot of awareness around what exactly is in my wine. And I think our listeners would love to know more about that. Yeah, I'm a little salty
0: about it anyway, so thank you. It's a whole lot harder to put all of your effort out there in the vineyard and into the ground with the soil, and you get such amazing returns on what's coming in. And then once it comes in, it's really making wine the same way that they have for thousands of years, you know, just like the Greeks and Romans did. You're really just pressing it, letting it do its thing, and then storing it in a container until it's ready, um, but the other alternative is you can take really crappy grapes and you can do whatever you want through manipulation to make them taste like good wine. And that's really the difference between mass produced wine where you're going to see like a two buck chuck, which is now I think four buck chuck on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going to the dollar store and spending five dollars yeah, on an item instead of a dollar. Inflation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's going to be the biggest difference is you'll have color additives. There will be dyes. There will be tannins that come in the form of liquid. And if you get an oak flavor, it'll probably be liquid oak. So it's literally drops that you can add to it or putting like oak chunks that soak in it instead of putting it in a traditional oak barrel. There's lots of different things you can do to manipulate that product and give you the mouthfeel, the texture of a good quality wine without actually making a good quality wine. And here in the United States, you don't currently have to put it on the label, although you do in other countries.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of uh, my intara's little soapboxes that we all inevitably always comes up in every single conversation is food labels, and so it is really fun to be able to have this conversation and bring to the forefront kind of what's going into uh, the wine bottle, and maybe not necessarily being you know portrayed on the outside of it for everyone to understand.
2: The more I've learned from you guys and being out at Enchantment, like the more I appreciate a good glass of wine and like a crafted, like I feel like getting back to that like handcrafted. Wine. And so actually, that brings up something I want to talk about is your wine is all harvested by hand. And then this year, you actually were processing it in the room you're right now, like currently um, recording this podcast. in. so a lot has kind of changed for you while like that's still that like very much attention to detail, like hands on approach is still there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's important to us. So when you're picking by hand, you're not disturbing the grape. You get the natural yeast that's on the skins of the grape. And we're using the natural yeast to make the wine in most cases instead of adding a commercial yeast strand, which is a little bit hippy and kind of gets a little funky. You don't know what it's going to do, but it makes for a beautiful product when it goes successfully. And speaking of successfully, the day tar was here, it was a disaster. Everything was falling apart. All equipment broke. Um, we were stressed out. <laughs> it couldn't have been any worse. We we're on the phone with somebody trying to communicate in Italian to try to figure out how to fix the equipment that came from Italy. I don't know. It was it was monstrous. And you
2: just, I think I was bad luck. I'm really sorry. <laughs> No. I'm not invited back anymore. And you were just so sweet. Like, this is great. I don't know. It's okay. I'll just get my wine and watch you. Oh, <laughs> I did. I, I was enjoying a glass of wine while like all hell was breaking loose. So I was just sitting back enjoying it. Uh, something else, though, I wish that people you were talking about the oak. Uh, well, maybe I'll share this to stories. I got a picture or a video of you smelling the wine and I got a chance to smell the wine in the oak barrels. And oh, my goodness, talk. I told you that you needed to like create a candle that had that. It was a really beautiful, just amazing smell. Um, and it just, I don't know, it got to show like the quality of the wine and, and just, you know, it going into the oak barrels and all of those like aspects of the winemaking.
0: Yeah. And on ordering our oak, it took us a full week just to place the order for our oak this year, which I I don't think you think about, but we started off with the product that we wanted. So like Chardonnay is a good example. We wanted it to be both buttery, but still have a light fruitiness and that determined everything. So once we have the plan, then we kind of know when to pick. And then when we're picking the oak, we knew we wanted French oak. We knew we wanted Allier, We wanted it from this certain area in France. We wanted this type of oak from this forest that has a certain flavor profile, but mixed with another flavor profile from another forest. It got ridiculously complicated. I don't know if it even makes a difference, but it sure makes us feel good about ourselves when we spend <laughs> a whole week ordering that product. And it's incredible when you get to smell your grapes that have been turned into wine and what they're doing as they're going along in that oak, you know, kind of breathing and going through that process.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. And like you said, it speaks to that intentionality you guys have when it comes to, you know, from the very beginning of your guys' process to the very end, um, which I kind of want to dive into because this podcast is named Discover Ag. And it's all about discovering parts of, you know, food system that we don't typically get to see. And I think wine harvest is something that most of, you know, average consumers would say they've never really seen. One of my favorite shows growing up was I Love Lucy. And I love the episode where she's like stomping in the the wine vats. Um, So I know that's... Probably not how you guys do it now. You're not getting in there barefoot and stomping the grapes. But could you share what harvest looks like, um, kind of walk people through that so they can get a better taste from, you know, what you guys are doing at Enchantment Vineyards?
0: Yeah. And actually towards the end, when all equipment broke and all hell broke loose, we were stomping by mm-hmm. hand, <laughs> or my foot, <laughs> which was really interesting. Um so generally leading up to harvest, I'm constantly testing the grapes. And I'm looking every day, morning, noon, and night at what the pH is doing, how it's changing, and then looking at the bricks, which is the percentage of soluble sugars. And generally, as the season is going on, the sugar is getting higher and higher as it's getting hotter. And then you have the pH, which is also getting higher. And as that pH gets higher, the acid falls off. And we're tasting for that magic moment where the sugar's high enough, but it still has some acid, or we really like that flavor profile. So I'm picking grapes, crushing them here just by hand, and then we're tasting juice and kind of all making that decision. And on all five varietals, we make the decision the day before and then the next day we pick. So it is a terrible business strategy in that there is no planning that can really be done. And then you're hoping you can get a whole bunch of people here to pick it by hand at like five in the
1: morning. I was going to say that was my question. You guys, do you have, um, you know, your hand picking it or is there a machine or like how does that work when you're actually out harvesting the grapes? Yeah, we pick it all by hand. We put it
0: in five gallon buckets and then put it in these big macro bins, which are just big square plastic bins. And then those square bins we pull into the winery and immediately put them into cold storage and we try to chill them down as quickly as we possibly can. Sometimes we'll put tubes in the center and even put dry ice in there to kind of help cool them down, and then the dry ice produces a gas that also helps protect all of the grapes. Um and then once they're cool, we start processing. So, we'll put them through a machine. Like the whites, this year we decided to whole cluster press. So, we took all of the grapes on the stems and everything and put them in the press, and it makes for a really delicate, pretty juice. Sorry, the flies are the flies are authentic here in the barn. (laughs) And then on the reds, we're putting them through something called a crusher to stemmer. And it's pulling all of those berries, the whole berries off of the stems. And then we're deciding how much we want to crush them. And we leave the juice on the skins and the seeds for a period of time. And that really helps it develop color. It helps it develop tannin. And then we just kind of monitor it as it's doing that process and then watch it And when we think we're ready for fermentation, start raising that temperature and then it naturally will start fermentation on its own.
2: So another crazy thing that I learned that I had no idea is like I assumed there was a variety of grape and it produced a certain type of wine and like red grapes make red wine and white grapes make white wine. And you told me like basically I was completely wrong about (laughs) all of that. So tell me like what grapes make what wine or how does that work? Yeah. So you can name the wine
0: a fanciful name. You can come up with like we have cacti white, which is a blend of white grapes, or you can name it off of that varietal like Albarino and Albarino is just the varietal of wine. And then that's the name of the wine. Um, So here we grow five. And then and we purchase a lot from around the state, but we grow a Chardonnay, a Pinot Meunier, which is a red grape that can be used to make white wine or red wine, or this year we made it into a blush, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, Cabernet Franc, Crimson Cabernet, which is a hybrid, and then a scent. And this year, our Cab Franc is smelling sexy. It's going to be hot. I am so sad that we have to wait two years to bottle it.
2: That is crazy about like the wine industry. um, And even like the planting of the vineyard, you have multiple years where you're not getting a harvest. And then once you get a harvest, you have to wait multiple years before your wine's even ready. So you almost have to like predict when you're planting grapes, you have to predict what's going to be popular in like five years from now, because that's how long it's going to take you to like Get the whole process going, right? Like it's kind of wild. It is. And that's why the
0: old saying in the wine industry is the easiest way to make a small fortune in the wine industry is to start with a large fortune because it's it's such a slow, tedious process. And it usually is that multi generational winery that finally is profitable (laughs) years later. But I think, you know, our reasoning behind wanting to do it is more than just the profitability.
2: You named off a bunch of wines that I don't. I'm not going to lie. I am a white wine drinker. So you named off a bunch of reds that I'm unsure about. But um, Natalie and I are doing a taste test of your guys's wine. So I have to know what is your favorite wine that you guys produce? Maybe give a white and a red or like a, a couple. So that you know, for the white versus the red drinkers, there's some suggestions.
0: I feel like that's picking between your children. Which one is your <laughs> favorite? Like that is unfair to ask me to try to pick which one my favorite is. Um, I think the two, the white and the red that I'm drinking the most right now, are the Albarino. I think it's just. Crisp and pretty and light and it just hits the spot. It's very nuanced and delicate, which I really like and a little more complicated. And it's a Spanish varietal. It's got a lot of acid, which I like. So it really pairs well with dishes that have a high fat content. Like, I don't know. It, I think it goes good with like pastas and cheeses. and Yeah, it goes well with dairy products. I don't know how you feel about that. That sounds perfect for me. <laughs> and then my other favorite on the red side would be Grenache. And it's another Spanish varietal. It's also grown in other places in Europe too. But it's more of a medium-bodied red. And it's my go-to when I don't know what I'm cooking that I feel like goes with everything. It's the Thanksgiving wine that you bring out that everybody loves.
2: Oh, that's good advice. Yeah, I love
1: having that go to. So that's I'm glad you um, shared that. You just mentioned uh, international and a couple places. And I know that that is a big goal of you guys at Enchantment Vineyards is actually to, you know, create really um, world class wine that really competes, you know, outside of your guys' state borders, well into, you know, across overseas. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you guys actually have won some awards and you're, you know, you've alluded to how good of a job you're doing, but, um, I want people to really know how good of a job you guys are doing.
0: Yeah. So we've been sending our wine continuously most years, not every year, to um, Finger Lakes competition. It's an international wine competition in New York. And we've won some mega awards. We've won golds, silvers, and we won a double gold, which was the best in class for one of our wines. And it really felt validating. Like we're beating out Croatia and damn it, they're really good winemakers. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, Croatia. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think it has been so validating. In fact, we keep teasing my dad that we're gonna take all of these medals and make one giant like halo that he can just walk around the winery in and greet people. I think that's
2: right. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, it is. Um, I personally love some of your uh wines. Um, I got my mom the ab. How do you say aberrino? Is that I say? It? No, but that's cute. It <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. good. Yeah, you're close. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what is it again? Alberino or Albarino? Alberino? <laughs> Okay, that one I got for my mom and it's really good. That's one of the ones I have in our wine uh, tasting set for Natalie and I. Um, so I, I know I love, I love that one. I love your estate Chardonnay. There's so many good ones. Um, so I think a couple things kind of like to wrap us up here. You know, if you're local in Eastern New Mexico, West Texas, you can actually go. You guys have a full on tasting room with food and live music. So maybe share a little bit about that. And then if you are not local, there is the option to purchase online and have wine shipped directly to your house, which is a fabulous choice as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we really are trying to gear more towards our wine club members and just do more of a curated, focused experiment on the people that we know and love and have um, them coming and visiting us or coming and visiting online. And so we do a wine club pickup that's four times a year. We throw a big, wonderful party for anybody in the local area or we ship it off for anybody who's not local. Um, and we ship, we can't ship to every state, but we do ship to most states in the United States. Those alcohol laws in the United States are still a little tricky and it is state dependent.
1: I was going to say, I think I ordered six bottles and they all came in, you guys, perfect condition. So if anyone is like worried about shipping wine to yourself, do not be worried about it. They arrived in pristine condition and Luke and I have been thoroughly enjoying them.
0: Well, good. And if for any reason they don't, call me and I will ship you more for <laughs> sure. Cause I want
2: everybody to have a really good experience. Awesome. Well, thank you, Megan, for coming on, sharing your wine expertise with us. This was really valuable. I know, uh, as I said at the beginning, if you are a wine lover, this uh, is some really great information that you know a lot of us didn't know about wine. And if you are shopping for wine, uh, especially with the holidays coming up, go to Enchantment Vineyards. You can go to their website. They are linked in our show notes, and you can use the code Discover twenty to save you some money. Um, and again, they can ship it right to your door in time for the holidays. So it would also make a great holiday gift. I think I'm going to gift that to. Some- some of the wine lovers in my life. So, thank you Megan for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.